Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, April 15th. On the show this week, a mini-summit. The Prime Minister, the Premier of British Columbia, the Premier of Alberta. Looking for a solution to the Trans Mountain pipeline dispute. Is a solution even possible that will appease all sides? Then, nowhere to hide. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg grilled by Congress over privacy, his own and ours. Are regulations coming and at what cost? And then we'll unpack the politics of one pipeline and three governments. But first, the Prime Minister breaks away from an international trip to meet with the Premiers of BC and Alberta today. The future of the Trans Mountain Pipeline is on the line and there's now a deadline. Kinder Morgan, the company behind the Trans Mountain expansion, has given Ottawa till the end of next month to resolve the dispute or it will scrap the $7 billion deal. What, if anything, can appease the opponents of the project? Today we talk to a linchpin of that opposition, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. And this past week, here was the Prime Minister's message to him and the BC government. The question is not uh, whether the pipeline is going to get built, the question is how the pipeline gets built, and we are uh, looking at all options. So, at this pivotal moment in Canada's oil-producing, climate-fighting history, a key figure in the debate is the leader of a provincial B.C. party with three seats. Andrew Weaver, your Green Party is punching above its weight. You have three seats, but you hold the balance of power in British Columbia. Is there any way, with safeguards or other assurances, that you could support another pipeline into British Columbia? What we've said for five years now is when the BC Liberals added their five conditions that they would need to be resolved in order to support uh, a, a pipeline to the coast, we added the sixth. And our sixth condition was this. We will never accept diluted bitumen, uh, being an increase in diluted bitumen traffic in our coastal waters. Nobody needs diluted bitumen. It's a product that will be shipped likely to California. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not upgraded here locally. And for us, that's an on starter. It's simply the risk of a spill of diluted bitumen where evidence is really clear that uh, in the presence of suspended particulate matter, which we have lots of in the Fraser River estuary and outflow, uh, it sinks. And it would be an ecological disaster in these coastal waters. And And the effect on our industry, our branding here in British Columbia would be profound. For the moment, you seem to be in lockstep with Premier Horgan. The big meeting today with Alberta, BC, the Prime Minister, would you bring down or withdraw your support of the BC government if uh, Premier Horgan looks at any sort of compromise or acceptance? I, I honestly don't think that uh, there's any difference right now between my opinion and Mr. Horgan's opinion. We both campaigned and our collective parties campaigned on this issue. It, it is a critical issue to British Columbians, uh, particularly those who live on the coast. And, and all that Mr. Horgan has done right now is seek uh, a judicial ruling. They participated in a couple of court cases to try to determine the extent to which British Columbia can enforce its jurisdictional rights and responsibility to safeguard its citizens in the coast of BC. So, so I, I don't even want to entertain that question because right now, you know, I meet with Mr. Horgan regularly and there's simply no difference between our views. We're both of the view that this is not good for, for, for the economy. We're both of the view that this sends the wrong message to, to Canada, to British Columbia. And we're both of the view that British Columbia is open for business and we're excited about investment in the new economy and we're not willing to put that at risk by having diluted bitumen tanker uh, export increase 28-fold. 
not sevenfold, it's 28-fold based on 2016 tankers into Vancouver. And, and it's just not worth the risk. And, and everybody who thinks, seems to think that this is, this is uh, in the interests of Canada needs to take a good hard look at, at, at what is actually contributing to Canada's economy and growth. And take a look at BC's economy, which is thriving right now with the lowest unemployment rates in the country at below 5%. And we don't have a vibrant oil and gas industry. We're not talking about tons of jobs in BC, but we are talking about risking our well-being and our environment and our existing branding of Vancouver as the greenest city in the world by 2020, only for political reasons. Because what happened, as you know, is that once the Keystone XL pipeline was not approved by Obama, Mr. Harper switched his push to the coast from the push to the south. And when Mr. Trump has come on in, he's now reapproved the Keystone XL. We don't even need the Kinder Morgan pipeline because there's, I mean, the, the, the source of the oil was going to be the California markets, which you could get there far cheaper by the Keystone XL. So the reality is that we got a lot of posturing going on. We also have a situation where it strikes me that Kinder Morgan's taken a good hard look at the in, in economics of their pipeline and recognized that when they went to the NEB, they were pushing forward with the project because they, and they were estimating oil at $150 a barrel. Well, it's not happening. So whether or not Mr. Horgan finds common ground with Prime Minister Trudeau, if Ottawa uses its extraordinary but legal powers to push forward, then what do you do? Well, there is the constitutional crisis. We do not have a constitutional crisis right now. We have a British Columbia government essentially seeking judicial rulings on, on its, its jurisdictional rights. The constitutional crisis would be when, if Mr. Trudeau were to, to suddenly override the wishes of a sitting government in British Columbia. I look forward to working with my friends in the province of Quebec to actually uh, bring them on our side as they recognize that this bodes very poorly for, for federal, provincial, jurisdictional uh, uh, exchanges. And I, you know, we know that the people in Quebec understand, they understand the reasons why British Columbians are concerned about this, because they share our concerns, and they were as concerned about diluted bitumen coming across their provincial boundary as well. So you would like to pivot decisively to a green economy, but at the moment, Canada is an oil-producing nation, and the argument is that we need to oil to sustain the economy until the country can turn the corner on energy, but if you kill oil now, you undercut Canada's economy right now. Well, that's actually a false argument, because let's take a look at Canada's economy right now. Right now, our economy is booming, and everyone knows that. And the reason why, when is it booming? At precisely the time that the price of oil is at, has been recently below $60 a barrel. Oil is not a driver of the Canadian economy. There are certainly people, it certainly has a profound contribution to past Alberta economy, but even Alberta is recognizing the future is in clean energy. You've got Shell talking about harvesting vanadium to, 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 to build batteries from, from bitumen instead of just, just, just uh, you know, oil products. We, th this, is, this is a fallacy. It's, it's, it's put on by mainstream media and by pundits all the time that somehow our economy is an oil economy. I, I look around British Columbia and I don't see an awful lot of our economy being by oil. We, we got more jobs in the beer industry for heaven 
heaven's sake than we do in the oil sands industry. So, so I, I just wish we'd actually, you know, have people would, would not believe the rhetoric that they're fed without actually taking a look at the numbers. And they're available, 2% of our GDP, oil and gas sector. That's not a big contributing factor. We touched on the possibility of bringing down the government. My guess is you don't want to entertain that right now, in part because the referendum in November on electoral reform in BC could mean more seats for the BC Green Party. Is that part of the motivation? No, and that's, that's a patently incorrect assertion that I know some have, have tried to put forward. I have spent 25 years as a climate scientist. I left uh, public, uh, my, 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 my work in the University of Victoria as a climate scientist at the pinnacle of my career to take a very substantive salary cut, not because I cared about proportional representation, but because I could no longer stand by and watch politicians, like we're seeing right now, say one thing and then do another on a very important issue, that is the, the requirement that we transition to a low-carbon economy for, the, for, for not only today, but also our future and intergenerational equity. I could not look my students and my kids in the face if I didn't actually stand up and put my, my, in our democratic institutions, stand what I believed in, and I did. And for me, it's all about that issue. It is not about proportional representation. That is an issue that the BC NDP campaigned on, as did we. And, and obviously, we support proportional representation, as apparently Mr. Trudeau did until he didn't anymore. And, and again, this is, uh, it's, it's really a diversion, though. For me, the is, this is the issue. It's the issue of transforming our energy systems to actually build prosperity in Canada, like so many jurisdictions around the world are, are doing, yet we are not. Setting aside the climate argument for the moment, this referendum on electoral reform, how significant a change would that be for British Columbia? Well, I, you know, British Columbia is, is an absolutely exceptional place for it to actually occur. Uh, anyone who's followed BC politics will realize that we've had a pendulum-type politics here for a very long time. We've, we've hit, typically had two parties, the NDP and whatever variation of uh, not others who are not MVP on the other side, whether it be Socreds, Liberals, Conservatives over the years. And the pendulum has swung from left to right and left to right. That's actually not healthy for democracy because what happens is, you know, the NDP are in for a while, then the Liberals tear apart what the NDP do and do something different. And you end up winning in a system where you have 100% of the power with a fraction of the vote. It would be, I think it would be a wonderful opportunity for Canada to, to witness democracy at its very best here in British Columbia. And, and I think uh, other can, uh, it, 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 the rest of Canada will follow. You know, the argument, the single biggest argument that has been put forward is that somehow you're going to have end up with fringe people running the, running the, running the, uh, uh, the country or the province. That happens under first past the post, not proportional representation. Under first past the post, you have very real potential for a populist, uh, anti-government kind of swing to put, you know, oligarchs or, or, or totalitarian-type leaders in place. And, and, and you know, it, it doesn't require proportional representation to do that. Yet you could be looking at perpetual minority governments. You would. Uh, you know, I, if I realistically were to look at British Columbia, I suspect that the Liberal Party would break into, realistically. Um, the Liberal Party is, is a very odd party that contains... Uh, you know, some federal liberals and a lot of federal, uh, federal Tories, a uh, very, very bizarre uh, matrimony. You don't have that problem in Ontario where there are distinctions between the Ontario Conservatives and the Ontario Liberals. The B.C. Conservative Party really is, is, is floundering here in B.C. I think it would be healthy for democracy to have conservative views reflected, liberal views reflected, green values and views reflected, and, and new Democrat values. And, and you know what? We might even get some libertarians in here. But if the, the will of the people is that that voice needs to be heard as well. That, that's, that's healthy because it forces 
forces us to talk to each other and forces compromise and it forces us to come to, to agreements. And what's wrong with that? Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Green Party, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me and it's been a distinct honour and privilege to work in this minority government here in the British Columbia. So, where does this leave the federal government on Western Canada's pipeline future? Joining us now from Winnipeg is Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr. Mr. Carr, we were listening to Andrew Weaver and the B.C. Green Party, and he says he's in lockstep with the B.C. Premier, and his bottom line is no pipeline. Uh, Ottawa has legal authority to move forward. What are the next steps? The next steps are to uh, find ways to ensure that all of the uncertainty uh, that has been created by the British Columbia government is cleared away so that the proponent knows that the pipeline will be built. Uh, they have determined that to make sure their investors have the confidence they need to ratchet up spending significantly, there has to be greater clarity. Uh, the position of the Government of Canada is that this pipeline is good for our country because of the jobs that it will create, because of the better price we'll get for our oil, uh, because of the expansion of export markets. 99% of the export of Canadian oil and gas goes to the United States. We think that's not healthy in the future for our country. The Asian market will be opened up. A billion dollars and uh, more has been contributed or will be contributed to the Ocean Protection Plan. Uh, this is to give us world-class protection for our coasts that all Canadians care about. We have co-developed with Indigenous communities up and down the line a monitoring of the safety of the pipeline. The option, of course, is that we move oil by rail. And I don't think most people think that's a safer way to do it. This is a project that's good for the Canadian economy, and it's good for those people who look for billions of dollars of revenue that will go to governments, including the British Columbia government, to spend as it sees fit for its people. Are you prepared for the kind of pushback you may still get, whether it's in the courts or from protests and the political fallout in British Columbia? We know that there will be pushback. You know, uh, this is a project that is controversial. There are people who feel very deeply about it. You know that most people in Alberta have a different view than some people in British Columbia, but there is only one government of Canada. The government of Canada made a decision. We have given the reasons to the Canadian people after unprecedented consultation throughout the country and particularly in British Columbia. There are 157 conditions attached by the National Energy Board. Uh, the proponent is working through those conditions. And we believe that this is a very good example of how we ensure that there is sustainable economic development along with environmental stewardship. This is a decision that is mindful of the importance of the energy sector for the future of the Canadian economy. It has to do with families, it has to do with jobs, it has to do with certainty that people will look upon Canada as a place to invest. And for all of those reasons, we are determined that the pipeline be built. Will the, have you been talking to Kinder Morgan and, uh, and does that mean yes. that Ottawa could invest <laughs> into the project? And will that get it started or just buy time? We have been talking to Kinder Morgan throughout, actually, uh, and it is certainly on the table uh, that the government of Canada will de-risk the project. That is the essential problem, that the investors aren't prepared to take the risk that's in front of them now because of uncertainty at a time when they would have to substantially increase their financial investment. They're facing seasonal deadlines of uh, May the 31st. 
So we know that the government of Canada uh, has a role to play to make sure that this uncertainty is moved to the side sufficiently for the investors to continue to show support that this can be a pipeline that will be built and built in a timely way, and that's our position. Andrew Weaver told us that, uh, that uh, the Canadian economy, it's overblown the impact of the oil part of this. If you were to not approve this, what would be the knock-on effects of not having this pipeline go forward? Well, we, we know that there will be billions of dollars of investment that would be lost for Canada, and particularly for British Columbia. Uh, we know that it sends a signal to international investors, which is not the signal we want to send. We think that Canada has a real opportunity to be a leader globally in a transition to a low-carbon economy. It wouldn't make any sense for us to take all of the resources we have and not use them as we extract them more sustainably, transport them more safely to use these revenues not only to uh, help in the financing of a transition to a lower carbon economy, but also all of these billions of dollars for governments, including the British Columbia government, to spend as it sees fit in its province. Well, this certainly has the Prime Minister's attention. He had to interrupt an international meeting to come here today to uh, meet with the two premiers. Uh, Jim Carr, thank you for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. Last week, Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress about Facebook and privacy breaches, Cambridge Analytica, and possible regulations for the social media platform. Zuckerberg was caught off guard when asked about having his personal information shared with others. Be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I think that might be what this is all about. How telling was that? So joining us now from San Francisco is Josh Constein, editor-at-large of TechCrunch, a technology news website. Josh, what was your takeaway, your takeaway from the hearing with Mark Zuckerberg? Zuckerberg was extremely boring during the testimony, and that was a huge win for Facebook. The company was really hoping to get away without any viral sound bites or big, juicy moments. And other than that one you played, it was pretty stale. Well, if all of us are now a little bit more aware that uh, how our information is being shared and sold, uh, what should that, you know, how will that change things? Is it going to change things that the world is now more familiar with the fact that our information is being bought and sold. I think people need to treat the permissions they give and the contracts they sign online the way that they treat road signs. When you see a stop sign, you know you have to read it and abide by it to stay safe. But when you give your app data to uh, an app on Facebook, you don't really think about it the same way. You just breeze through it like it's fine print in a contract. And I think we need to change our behavior. And, and talk to me about that behavioral change that you think needs to be made. People really view privacy as a pretty abstract concept. It's not something that materially affects their life on a day-to-day -day basis. But when it gets violated, like this situation with Cambridge Analytica, they get up in arms. And so I think people need to think about the way that they act every day online and realize that when they give away their free data in exchange for free services, like on Facebook, they really are paying something. It is a value exchange, and they should be cognizant of what they're giving up. Facebook seems prepared to accept regulations, 
How do you see that taking shape, particularly in a borderless uh, social media world? Facebook is going to adopt some of the same regulations that apply to television when it comes to political advertising. You're going to see a little paid for by label on political ads. But overall, Facebook is trying to self-police before the government can get in and do anything too stringent that could really affect its business model. That's why I don't expect there to be a ton of changes to Facebook. And that actually might be a good thing, because if Congress and world governments put too heavy a regulation on Facebook, it might just amount to a paper work speed bump for the big company who has armies of lawyers to deal with compliance, but it could deter smaller startups from ever growing into true rivals. And that's what we need is alternatives to Facebook to keep this big company treating our data well. I mean, is this a matter of survival for Facebook or are we going to see like what kind of changes do you think we'll see on that landscape? Facebook has been trying to safeguard its privacy at every angle. So this last week, it shut down a bunch of its application platform capabilities. App developers just can't build the same things they used to. And the same goes for Instagram. If you ever used an app that lets you see who your friends were, or who followed you, and who you should follow back, those apps aren't going to work the same anymore because Facebook doesn't want data escaping in the same way. But I think long term, we're really going to see a reversion to the status quo. Once this scandal blows over, people are going to go right back to scrolling their news feeds. And tell me about if we do have more regulations and they happen, say, in Europe or in Washington. And how does that affect Canadians? And, and how should Canadian policymakers be acting now? Thankfully, the European Union has passed, passed the GDPR, which is a privacy regulation that Facebook says it's going to essentially honor around the world. So that's going to be great for Canadian citizens. That said, I think that Facebook really escaped without any serious regulation threats from Congress because most of the senators just really didn't understand how Facebook worked. They were giving Zuckerberg really easy questions. I think if the Canadian government wants to really make a difference to protect Canadian citizens, it should require that if there's ever a data breach or some example of users having their data stolen from Facebook, that Facebook should have to notify those users within 72 hours. And I think that government should make it so that Facebook has to let you find your friends on other competing apps. I was uh, always struck, uh, going back 15 years, by my own kids and millennials generally, how unconcerned they were with privacy. Is privacy making a comeback, or has that ship sailed? I do think that ship has sailed because the new teens coming up these days, they really view themselves as part of this global communications network, this global community, and they want to have their voice heard. They don't want to just always stay private. And I think we really need to decouple the idea of a privacy problem and a security problem. There's one issue uh, that it's, it's one thing to give your data away or say something in public on the internet, but unless that's really being exploited to your detriment, it's not a security issue. So I think rather than saying, oh, we need to find all these ways to make it so you can't share publicly or give your data to app developers on Facebook, instead we need to focus on the security problems. Which are the apps that are abusing that data and how can we shut them down? So very briefly then, where do you think things will stand, say, two years, three years out from now? 
I think Facebook's going to be doing just fine. The fact is that it's realized that the way that big tech companies get disrupted is by young startups doing something really different. And Facebook has figured out that it should just buy those companies whenever possible. It bought Instagram, it bought WhatsApp, and I think it's still going to remain powerful for that reason for years to come. That said, I think that Congress and world governments should really prioritize competition because if there's really some alternative to Facebook that people can turn to, it will force Facebook to treat our data better. All right, Josh Constein in San Francisco, thanks very much. My pleasure, thanks for having me. The Trans Mountain Project, so urgent it caused the Prime Minister to interrupt his international trip to come back to Ottawa. Trudeau Minister Jim Carr made it clear on our show that the project is going forward. Green Party leader Andrew Weaver told us that this could mean a constitutional crisis. So joining us now to analyze this, the Toronto Star's Tonda McCharles. Hey, Eric. So, Tonda, um, Ottawa says it's making it clear it's going forward with this. What are its options to get this to, to go? Yeah, they've got, well, they keep saying they've got a broad range, but look, they've already eliminated uh, one sort of olive branch. Um, a lot of people expect that uh, BC is going to go ahead with its own question to a court out there, you know, do we have the power to slow down oil through this pipeline and protect our coast? Uh, they wanted Ottawa to take that question directly to the Supreme Court of Canada, because only the federal government can directly refer it. And Bill Morneau said, not a chance. We already know it's federal jurisdiction, so we're not doing that. Their other options now look a little bit like this. Say if they brought in um, a, a new piece of legislation, call it, let's call it the Trans Mountain Act and took over some of the permitting and other approvals that are necessary to push this through. Um, they could take uh, an equity position, buy up stock from nervous investors in Kinder Morgan. Uh, they could take a controlling stake in it. They could provide loan guarantees or some kind of other financial guarantee mm -hmm. to say, you know, we'll cover your costs. Uh, if the project doesn't go through, we'll cover your construction costs. That could be, you know, on a go forward basis or on a, a look back basis. They have a range of options. So Ottawa has to, you know, move this forward now. Um, in, in what way is it going to, I guess, uh, are there political consequences that are not so much uh, with an economic consequence in mind? Oh, I think for sure there are. I mean, look, there are a lot of nervous BC Liberal MPs because they know that opposition to that pipeline landing in Burrard Inlet uh, in Burnaby, BC has grown in a vacuum somewhat because while the federal government has been waiting for the regulatory process to, to get to its end, when the NEB approved it and then the feds came and said, yes, we approve it, and then they met the former BC government's conditions to approve it, you know, bolstered the, the oceans protection stuff. Mm -hmm. um, while they eventually came to saying yes to the project themselves, opposition has been growing among indigenous communities, among environmentalists out in BC. And uh, just like what happened in Keystone XL in Washington, that Obama got pushed back because there was a huge growing movement against yeah. that. They're facing that now. They have to deal with, I think, a very vociferous, loud protest movement. And what you don't hear are the voices of the people who signed on and supported it. So the BC Liberals are nervous. The NDP thinks they stand to gain. Um, but there are 43 First Nations communities along that pipeline route that have supported it and have signed mutual benefit agreements with the company. So Andrew Weaver says a constitutional crisis is brewing here. He's going to talk to his friends in Quebec. I mean, how thorny could this get? Well, he's lighting like 
throwing a match on a fire, isn't yeah. he? Isn't it funny how last week they were saying, more constitutional crisis. This is just about some nervous investors. We're not doing anything. Like, okay, all of a sudden they're playing the constitutional card. Look, I think that the constitutional card that the feds can play here is that pipelines that cross jurisdictions, cross provincial boundaries, are within their jurisdiction. It's gone through the regulatory approvals. It's been screened. They've put protections in place. They have a lot more on the line now. They have staked their ground, the feds have. Justin Trudeau has to make this happen because, look, if you talk to the business community, everybody's saying investor confidence is at risk here. And that's a pretty scary thing if you're leading a government who's counting on economic growth to be able to do anything else. Never mind his carbon tax plan. Who's going to buy into that? Alberta has said no to it if the pipeline doesn't go through. Tonda, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eric. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block.